1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Svetaro and I am here today with Mr. Dave Pascarella. Hey Dave. Paul, good to be with you again. Always good to have you on. So everybody who's listening saying, okay, Dave is there, it must be James Bond, and where's Chris Tyler? But today we are following up on the discussion we had when we were doing The Man with the Golden Gun and we're taking a look at Dean Martin as Matt Helm which is one of the James Bond uh, imitators. I was going to say spin-offs, but it's certainly not that. It's, it, it is to some extent an imitator. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's definitely an interesting, you know, an, an interesting thing that they set up these movies because apparently the Matt Helm se series of books, as I understand it, was absolutely in its own way, and I've never read any of them, but similar to the James Bond series in that they were serious and they were, you know, putting up, putting these books out about the, you know, the very sophisticated spy in the 1960s. Uh, and then when they went to make the movies, uh, at some point they decided, well, let's do them a little bit more tongue in cheek. Let's, let's give it, do them a little less serious than that. Uh, and they were, they were, uh, adapted or they they were purchased they were produced by Irving Allen that's Irving not Irwin uh who had previously been a partner with uh, Albert Broccoli who went on with Harry Saltzman to make the James Bond movies uh and apparently Broccoli wanted to buy the James Bond rights but Allen didn't want to and the partnership broke up and uh, at that point, Broccoli went into partnership with Harry Saltzman and made the Bond movies. And then I guess at some point, Alan had some sort of, uh, you know, regret that he hadn't gone to it. And he decided uh, to make his own spy movies. And he had read one of the Matt Helm books and said, oh, well, let's let's option this. And uh, then they decided they ended up making four movies. Uh, and 
there's I'm trying to remember now there's the silencers there's the ambushers there's wrecking crew and I'm missing one murderers row murderers row okay uh, had you seen any of these before we decided we were going to do this I had seen believe it or not the tail end of this one but I didn't realize it until I was three quarters of the way through the movie under what circumstances had you previously seen it? Uh, I was flipping through, I think, AMC or something like that. And I knew Dean Martin had made these movies. And I was going to check it out. But I checked it out too late. And, how and, long, and how typically, long they, you know, they repeat these things, but not this one. Mm. How long ago was that? Not that long ago. Maybe nine months ago. Oh, really? Okay, and then you watch the whole thing for the sake of today's show. Yes, sir. I remember having seen, and I think it was Wrecking Crew, uh, quite a while ago. I, I'm saying sometime in the 1970s, uh, that it was like, I was probably like a, you know, maybe 12, and it was one of those times where like my mom and dad had gone out to dinner, and I was home alone, and, you know, you, you want to put on something... Uh, that's not going to spook you because you're home alone. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were not that many choices on TV that were, you know, that, that, that were, I was comfortable with. I, I didn't, I wasn't looking to put on sports. Uh, I, I was not really into sports at that age. I was like late when I was a later teen that I became a sports fan. And I think there was probably like some scary movie on or something. And I didn't want to watch that. And I ended up putting on the wrecking crew. And what I do remember, like, the thing I remember is as, you know, a fairly young kid, I didn't get the humor. You know, I almost viewed it the way, like, very young kids will view Batman uh, 66 and just think, you know, it's serious, you know. <laughs> so I, I didn't realize that this was tongue-in-cheek. And having watched now The Silencers for the sake of this episode, uh the humor is, I mean, it's clearly there, it's, you know, it, but most of the humor is, like, through exaggeration. There's there's no, like, punchlines to speak of. Right. So I feel like the humor isn't obvious unless you're, you know, aware enough of, of the circumstances. To me, it was just a cheesy movie at the time, you know? Like, yes. I, I, I didn't think the cheesiness was intentional. Now I'm watching this, to, you know, for, for I, and I hadn't seen any Matt Helm movies in the years between. Uh, but I was always familiar that it existed, and I've always loved Dean Martin. Uh, but, you know, I, I watch in this, and I say, okay, now I, I see the humor. And, and the humor is almost, it's almost Austin Powers without a punchline. It's exactly that, yes. Now, I can give you, a, I'm going to give my trivia piece that I've discovered here to connect these movies to James Bond besides the obvious theme, thematic connections. All right, you ready for this? Shoot. Dean Martin's uncle, his mother's brother, Leonard Barr, was Shady Tree from uh, Diamonds Are Forever. That's funny. So that's oh my my, my Dean Martin connection. Oh, my Dean Martin. Well, oh, my Matt Helm, uh, James Bond connection. Six degrees of Dean Martin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think this movie, in my opinion, is better better than Austin Powers, in, in my opinion. Well, I mean, this was... <laughs> I think it, it, it's 
it's funny, but it's subtle enough that if you took it slightly in the other direction, he could have played this straight. And that's as a kid, you know, I thought he was playing it straight. I think uh, the, the the plot synopsis is short enough because this this is definitely a uh, you know when we we talk about James Bond about the plots and how they just kind of go from thing to thing and sometimes you you really just have to not pay too much attention or you wonder how the heck they managed to do that. This movie has that <laughs> that down pat, you know, it's just thing, things just go on and you're like you you just have to say okay yeah that's happening now. Uh, but I, the plot synopsis is short enough that I think I'm going to give it for this one. And just uh, as an aside, this movie was released on February 18th, 1966. So it would have been in between Thunderball and You Only Live Twice when this came out. And this is the first of the Matt Helm movies. Uh, the plot is that once a photographer by day spy at night, Matt Helm is now happily retired. Matt Helm is now a happily retired secret agent, shooting photos of glamorous models instead of guns, and enjoying a close relationship with his assistant, the lovely Kravitz. But then his old boss, McDonald, coaxes him back to the agency ICE, I-C-E, to thwart a new threat from the villainous organization Big O. The sinister tongue Z's Tong Z is masterminding a diabolical scheme to drop a missile on an underground atomic bomb test in New Mexico and possibly instigate a nuclear war in the process. Helm's assignment is to stop him, armed with a wide assortment of useful spy gadgets, plus the assistance of the capable femme fatale Tina and the seemingly incapable Gail Hendricks, a beautiful but bumbling possible enemy agent. Along the way, Helm is nearly sidetracked by a mysterious knife-wielding seductress, and he witnesses the murder of a beautiful Big O operative, the sultry striptease artist Sarita. In the end, Helm prevails with Gale by his side as he single-handedly destroys Tung Zee's evil enterprise and plot to rule the world. So it's a pretty simple synopsis, and it doesn't really give you a heck of a lot of the details in there. But and it, it's a it's, very short running time, too. The running time is 102 minutes. So it's not terribly short. It's, you know, to me, to me, once you once you get under 90 minutes, then it becomes an unusually short movie, especially in this era. Uh, right. A 90 minute movie wasn't as uncommon in this era as it is now. It's it's no end game. <laughs> no, no, that's. that's <laughs> but you know what? I, I feel like that keeps it from uh, overstaying its welcome. Yes. Because it it does have that you know that silliness about it, and I think if you, if you if you dragged it on too long, it would become more tedious than it is. I think it it, it serves itself well by not having that. Yeah, I would uh, agree. So, you know, I guess we'll start with Dean Martin. Uh, you know, we we talked about just in in some very vague terms. I've always loved Dean Martin as far as the Rat Pack goes. He's the guy for me. He yep, isn't. Me I don't. I don't think he's the best singer, but he's the one I'm the biggest fan of. Uh, he's the I, one who would actually be fun to be around. I think. Yeah, I, and you know, just just looking at like his biography a little bit, you know, they they talk about how he played up the, uh, you know, the, like the alcohol thing for for the sake of his show and everything, but that that was dramatically exaggerated. That he, you know. He, he of of the Rat Packers when they would be on tour, he was the one who would uh, who would actually you know 
call it a night relatively early and, and go to his room and go to bed. Uh, you know, where, where the other ones would be out partying. And, you know, I think there's always been the question, and we talked about this last time, about, you know, who was cooler, Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin. And I think the popular conception is that Sinatra was so cool. But, first of all, Dean Martin, one of his nicknames was the King of Cool. <laughs> Second of all, I, I stick with what I had said last time in that if you want to be perceived as cool, that is not as cool as somebody who just goes about their business and is cool naturally. And I've always felt that that Demon really didn't care if you thought he was cool or not. He just was because that's what he was. Whereas Frank Sinatra wanted you to think he was cool. Uh, agree a hundred percent. Plus, like right? I, I, I've said F Frank Sinatra seemed to me to always have that very hard edge, whereas Dean didn't. But there was a genuine warmth, I think, to Dean. But according to what I read, they were, you know, they were legitimately close friends. So, I believe that. So I, you know, I guess there was something there. Uh, you know, Dean Martin was, uh, you know, he's he's an interesting guy when you when you look a little bit into his his background. I mean, he was born in in the in the United States, but his first language was Italian because he came from a family of Italian immigrants. Uh, you know, so, so English was actually his second language. Uh, he, you know, he dropped out of high school. He, you know, he, he had a rough youth. He was a bootlegger at one time. He worked at a speakeasy. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't squeaky clean by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, he eventually got into, uh, into show business. And I think that was, you know, based on his, his voice, which was, uh, extremely pleasant i would say you know he had that crooner voice and i you know i really enjoy his music i have to say and you know i know that makes me an old man but i'm an old man anyway so whatever uh you know then he he i guess he really became big when he teamed up with jerry lewis and they did that series of of comedy movies and then the two of them had a uh you know, kind of a, a an uncomfortable breaking up of the partnership and the friendship, and he went, you know, as a, for his solo career, and he did a lot of uh, westerns, and he did, you know, the movies, I guess, with the Rat Pack, Robin and the Seven Hoods, Ocean's Eleven, those movies. He was and, in, uh, was it what? What was it? Is it the Sons of Katie Elder with uh, John Wayne? Yeah, John Wayne, and uh, there were there were the four of them. It was Earl Holliman. Uh, John Wayne and the youngest son. I don't remember who played him. He was John Wayne was the oldest son. He was the second son. He was also in Rio Bravo with John Wayne. Uh, right. And th those those were I, I enjoy both of those movies a lot. Uh, Rio Bravo's in in my mind no question it's it's the better movie. But the Sons of Katie Elder is kind of a fun movie. Uh, so then you know eventually he went on to do this and. Uh, at the time this came out, he was 49. So, you know, he was no no spring chicken. But, you know, I, I you know, we talked about as we were doing uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. And, I, you know, we talked about who would be the American person to oppose Bond. Uh, and despite the Italian persona and all, you know, he was born in America. And, and you know, he presented as an American, as Matt Helm, certainly. Uh, I think at this point... You know, in, in 1966, somewhere around, you know, you only live twice. 
if they had decided we want to have the American counterpoint to Bond to face Sean Connery in the movie, I think Dean Martin could have done the part really well. I agree, a hundred percent. I think you know he could he could play this the, he could play the regular guy, but he he could also play the sophisticated guy. Uh, I, I kind of feel like he he was one of those guys that no matter what you did, he was always going to come off as cool. You put him in a tuxedo, he fit perfectly. If you if you put him in in clothes as a, as a homeless person, he would come off as a very very cool homeless person. He would never he would never be you know I, I don't think Dean Martin was capable of playing pathetic. No, no. And, and you know if he was going to be an American James Bond, I mean you would tone down the humor a bit, but even with some of the humor, Americans typically we don't have that stiff British upper lip. You know, there's a certain in, in Ray laxness. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's, to me, it's not a stretch. He he could have been American James Bond. Yeah. So casting him in this movie almost seems like a no-brainer. Now I don't know if it was. I don't see on the you know the research that I did. I didn't see anything where they gave a list of other actors who were considered for it. Uh, so I'm not sure if he was their first choice or not. But it seems to me like he would be an easy first choice. Yeah. I, in, in in that era, and we, we kind of talked about that the other day. In that era, who would you go with? Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, uh, you know, Jack Yul Brenner. <laughs> Yul Brenner, you can't have because I, I I don't remember what Yul Brenner's background is, but he's, if nothing else, he did not have an an American accent. No. But I'm trying to think of actors of that era and who you might go with, and uh, you know I don't I don't really see anybody else. What do you think? Especially the, uh, there's no one else who would have had the ability to deliver humor the way he did in this particular film. If you were going to make it a straight then I would say uh, Jack Lord. Yeah, he he definitely could have uh, he could have he could have played that part. That's true because we always talked about him and uh, as Felix Leiter. Uh, just just as a by the way, Yul uh, Brenner was actually born in Vladivostok in the Far really? Eastern Republic, uh, and he's of Russian American heritage. I like that. I, I did not know that until I just looked at it. Uh, yeah, I, I thought mean, he was from Siam. Oh wait, that's the character. <laughs> Jack Lloyd definitely. That's that. He he would have been a a good choice. Uh, I don't know what year Hawaii Five went on, so I don't know if he would have been in the middle of that. And but he, yeah, he, he's I, I I like him as a, as an alternative. I don't think he would have been better than Dean Martin, but I think he would have been right up there. Uh, then we have, uh, to me, one of the, the biggest comedy elements in this movie is it's it's something we don't see all that much in the movie, but Victor Bono playing Tung Z. So Victor Bono's playing an Asian guy with very uh, heavy-handed makeup. You mean like Dr. No? Yeah, well, it's like Joseph Weissman playing an Asian guy. But, you know, you know the funny thing is when... In, in in both parts, they never really make a point of saying, "Hey, you know, this is an Asian guy." You just you're just supposed to realize it. And wow. with Tung Z, uh, 
<laughs> it just seems like kind of almost dopey. Whereas with Dr. No, I, I'll tell you, as a kid, I didn't even realize he was supposed to be Asian. Like, it never occurred to me. Yeah, so, I think the only reason I knew is when he gives his background. Isn't mm-hmm. like his one of his parents is a German missionary, and the other was Chinese, I think. I don't even recall for sure, to be honest with it's you. It's either that or Mr. Spock in The City on the Edge of Forever. I keep mixing yes, those he's up. got his ears caught in a rice picker or whatever. <laughs> some some <laughs> comment like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, his part, his, his part is almost, uh, <laughs> negligible, to be honest with you. But anytime Vince least... Bono is on the screen, it makes me smile, because I, I just, <laughs> him as an actor makes me laugh. At least he ate low-cal chop suey from the can. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's one of the more comedic things in the movie. Uh, uh, we have Stella Stevens playing Gail Hendricks, so she's the, uh, the bombshell, clumsy... Is she uh, uh, is she with us or is she against us, agent? Uh, yes. And, and the bathing was fantastic. She, I, I think she she was better in that part than uh, than Britt Eklund in the Man with the Golden Gun, which we just reviewed. Yes, without a doubt, without a doubt. Then we and we have uh, and she was you know she I didn't realize that she was a 1960s. Or 1960, the year 1960. In one of the months, she was a playmate of the month. I didn't know that either. Huh. I didn't. I did not either. I guess I'll have to do some research on this, you know, just to <laughs> be well informed. Yes. <laughs> I'm doing it for the articles for you, so you don't have to. Uh, another part that was kind of negligible, or actually two parts that were pretty negligible in the movie, but fairly big names: Roger Carmel as yes, Andreev. You know, just another familiar face on the screen, but really, you know, served very little purpose in the uh, movement of the plot. Uh, and, and we have Sid Charisse, who who comes in, does a song and dance, gets shot, and is gone. Easy come, easy go. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and then one another part I thought was really good casting, actually, was James Gregory as McDonald. Yes. So he he's... He's kind of playing the M in this world. Is it, is he the same guy who played the inspector on Bonnie Miller? Yes, he is. He's, yeah, it's the voice. And he's in, uh, what's the Sinatra movie? Oh, you know where they get captured by the North Koreans? I'm not certain. And they're gonna, the guy's going to run for president or something like that. Oh, uh, the Manchurian Candidate. The Manchurian Candidate, wasn't he in that too? I think you're right. I think he was in that. Uh, I'll confirm that in just a moment. Uh, but he's good. I like him. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a very appealing actor. Yes, he was in The Manchurian Candidate playing Senator John Isselin. And he's in Star Trek too. He's in the one where uh, they go to the rehab planet. Yes, Doctor something or other, and just to just to can give him total geek credibility, he's also in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, <sighs> playing a gorilla so a gorilla general. Boy, so, so it's hard to get he's much more credibility than that. 
So, but he, he's to me, he's he's in one of these actors where I don't think I've ever seen him in anything where I haven't liked him. I, I'm not going to put him out there as a great actor because I don't know if in all the parts he's been in, I don't know if I've ever seen him had to have to uh, truly perform a, a significant dramatic scene. I'm sure he has in some movie, but I can't off the top I of my head. Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, he, he, there may be a scene in there where he had to stretch his acting chops a little bit. But like I said, I can't picture one on the, off the top of my head. And and that's not to say he doesn't have acting chops. It's just to say I haven't really seen them stretched. Uh, so I'm crediting him largely on charisma. I, th- I think there's, there's just an element about him that you are... You know, there's a magnetic element about him, and and I think a lot of it is the voice, frankly. And he comes off as like I, I found he came off as likable. Yeah. Whereas M comes off, he's kind of like a cold fish. He's he's likable in in just about everything I've ever seen him in. Even uh, like I said, I'll, I'll I'll give you where where he's in Planet of the Apes, where he's playing the the warmongering guerrilla general who's who's trying to kill all the humans, and yet. I still enjoy his character and I enjoy him. So he's just a likable actor. Uh, you know, the story, as I said, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of out there. It just kind of bounces around with the, uh, you know, from scene to scene, you know, we first meet, uh, I almost said, I almost said Bond. We first meet Matt Helm and he's, uh, he, you know, he's laying on a bed, and the, it's it's all geared up where it slides forward, and then it tilts up, and it drops him into a giant swimming pool bathtub uh, full of uh, bubbles. Him and his, and his assistant are in there, and then they, they get out, and they're, uh, you know, there's all, like, automatic things to dry them off, and towels, and whatever. So, you know, they're, they're showing him as in this, you know, ultra-modern, sophisticated world... Uh, and and he's a retired you know he's retired from the spy business you know just working as a photographer supposedly and you know James Gregory is desperate to get him back because of this plot that uh, that's being hatched to uh, go after the the uh, what you call the atomic weapons and all uh, which you know the plot is right out of a, a an Ian Fleming story so you could see where they could have easily made this movie as a serious James Bond type film. Now, this is based on two books put together. Yes. Uh, the Silences and Death of a Citizen. Which Death of a Citizen, if I understand correctly, is the first Matt Helm book. That's the one that introduces it, the character. And I believe that there's a plethora, I couldn't even tell you how many novels, uh, that, you know, that were being written, I think, into the 1980s. And and they are, uh, I think, what was popularly considered like airport books. You know, a, a book mm-hmm. you'd pick up for a flight, uh, and you'd be able to read it over the course of you know a few hours. You didn't, you know, they were right. they, they were definitely not heavy material. Right. And, and it wasn't had, war and peace. No, it, it, it was it was definitely light reading. But you know, but the character was very popular, and the books remained popular. Uh, I'm a little surprised that they didn't make more. Of this character, you know, I'm surprised we haven't seen like a, an effort to seriously present Matt Helm as a character in a fi- in a film. 
See, uh, I don't know. I would think the excuse would be people today would look at it and go, ah, oh, it's James Bond. I'm, I'm wondering if it would be more. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's that, that risk, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there might be more of a, a likelihood of them seeing it as, a, as Jack Ryan. Mm, that's true, too. And I, you know, I guess maybe you know maybe part of the theory is why option out the character and pay for it when you could just do any other kind of Bond ripoff, you know, American Bond ripoff. You don't need to to buy this character. But I do. I think there's name recognition, uh, but I think the name recognition does lie with an older fan base. I don't think any young kids know who Matt Elm is. Uh, and I do think there's also a connection in that older group, even for people who haven't seen the films, that Matt Helm is Dean Martin. Right. So I don't, I don't know if that works for you or against you. I don't know. There was supposed to be a fifth film called The Ravengers, but there's no information as to why it wasn't made. Now, what, what I did see, and I don't know if it's accurate or if it's apocryphal, is that uh, after four, I think Dean Martin kind of felt like he had enough. Mm-hmm. That could I, be. And I don't think he was under contract, and I don't think he really felt like doing any more of them. And if he was 49 when they made the first one, uh, I don't know when they made the last. Probably 69. Yeah, so they, they put him out in rapid succession. Then, if, if this yeah. one came out in '66 and they were four out by '69, it looks like two came out in '66. Murderers Row also released '66. Ambushes '67 and Wrecking Crew '69. Yes, yeah, so, and that would put him at 52, 53 years old at that point. Uh, you know, he 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 did very very well for himself financially, especially in his his. You know, his uh, later years, as time went on, uh, his investments were really solid. And by the time we got to the late 60s, when he was in his 50s, uh, I think he financially could just kind of do whatever he felt like doing. I don't think he needed any of this for a business, for for finance purposes. So that's when his TV series went from, you know, a regular variety show to the roasts where he would have to do less work, and even the roasts were uh, decreased in in, uh, in in you know the frequency that they'd come out uh, over time. And he was in not too many movies after after these. I mean, he was in a few, you know, the Cannonball Run movies, that type of thing. But he but he wasn't in a lot. Uh, and I I don't know what I'm, I couldn't tell you as far as his recording career. Uh, I know he, you know, he, he cl- slowed down on his live performances, uh, and what I did see was that uh, he did eventually do one performance when he was like in his early 70s. Uh, that was kind of his farewell performance, him and Sinatra together. But they said, you know, he he really wasn't into it at all. Uh, he, I, he he was never the same after his son was killed yeah, in well, that training he, exercise. Yeah, his son. Uh, who was also Dean, but uh, he yeah he was killed in a in a a plane uh, accident, and yeah military. Supposedly, supposedly he went into uh, you know into a deep depression after that, and you know that was pretty much it for him uh, as far as you know being a public figure. 
So that's well, kind of sad. I, I, to just throw up, but that that kind of tells you what kind of family he had. With all their money and all their wealth, his son went into the service still. Yeah, there was no effort to avoid the military or anything like that. So it, it makes it makes you respect him more. Yep. So, uh, you know, I, I can't go too far into this because uh, the movie is very light. Frankly, there's, there's not a lot to, to discuss. Uh, but I did find it enjoyable. And just, just going a little bit more into... Uh, his connections, uh, Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys married uh, his daughter, Gina. And mm. uh, he also had uh, Dorothy Hamill was his daughter-in-law at one point, And uh, so was Olivia Hussey, uh, both having married his son, Dean, at one point. He had four children. And uh, what does it say? Uh, Craig, Martin's eldest son, elder, elder son, was married to Lou Costello's daughter, Carol. Wow. I hope she looked like her mother. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what Pat Costello looked like, actually, to be honest with you, so I don't know if that's good or not. I've seen her, because I remember when, when seeing Lou Costello on This Is Your Life and stuff like that, but I can't remember... If she was a good-looking woman or not, frankly, but whatever. I mean, if she, if she was there going, "I'm a bad girl," that could be interesting. <laughs> but I guess you know, I, I guess these these people, you know, the celebrities probably traveled in similar circles, and that's how their children, you know, ended up meeting each other and and becoming, uh, you know, romantically involved. But you know, he, he had a lot of connections, but I think the Shady Tree one is the biggest connection, personally. There's a couple of uh, scenes or things in this picture that I feel I, I have the need to point out. Please do. I found it very interesting that this spy, we're, we're familiar with spies and the vehicles they drive, that he's driving a Mercury Colony Park station wagon throughout the movie. Hmm. Yeah, it tricked out one, but a station wagon. I found it amusing where uh, Stella Stevens puts on the radio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frank Sinatra's on the radio, and Dean's like, oh, this is, he, he's terrible. Change the station. He changes the station. And he comes on. Ah, oh, this is much better now. He's a guy who knows how to sing. <laughs> that's that's a that's a, a fun scene. Uh, what else was interesting, particularly after our last James Bond movie, where uh, he's by the pool with Tina and uh, Stella Stevens. She, well, she spills her drink on him and gets him all messed up. And instead of coming on to her, he tells her right off the bat, oh, that's my wife, I'm married. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, as we've seen with Bond, he would have locked her in a closet. <laughs> well, the other thing that, that connects it to the other movie is they actually have bullets with his name on them. Yes. Literally. They did bullets it first. With his name. Yes. Uh, the, the, you know, the movie is also not uh, bereft of gadgets. 
the most interesting, which I thought was the gun that shoots backwards. And where does that make a return in a James Bond movie? That shoots backwards? Yes. You, I, I'm, you know, I'm at a loss. When was that? The original David Niven Casino Royale. Oh, okay. You know what? The big fight scene at the end, the guy comes on and goes, eh, this gun shoots backwards. I just killed myself, and he falls over. You know what? I, I've never watched that from beginning to end. <laughs> it takes a little bit to get through. And, and the only way I'm going to is for the sake of this series, if we decide to cover more uh you know, more of the spin-offs of Bond. And if we do, I'd be more inclined to do uh, uh, Our Man Flynn or Flint or whatever. Uh, or No, it's In Like Flint, right? I think it's, um, I think it's Our Man Flint. Yeah, I think there's, there's, I think there's two or three of them, but uh, I might be inclined to do that or, uh, or maybe Austin Powers, but we'll see. I don't know. Right now, we'll just stick with what we got. Uh so, you know, the, yeah, there are the gadgets here and, you know, they do come into play in the movie a little bit. And it's nothing, you know, nothing overly crazy, but, uh, you know, just some fun stuff. And I think to me, that's the way I describe this movie. Nothing crazy, but kind of fun. Uh, it really is something where I don't think I would particularly seek it out necessarily. But if you were, you know, if it was on AMC and you're sitting around and, you see that it's coming on. It's probably worth a viewing. Uh, if you like Dean Martin, it's worth a viewing. It's just, you know, it's just kind of light, light fun is the way I would describe it's it. Fun is the way to describe it. Yeah. So, anything else? Any other key things to to mention in your notes before we get to rating it? That seems. Uh, just uh, with the technology, the gadgets, if you want to call them, I think at the time. What did we say? Thunderball came out in 66? It was after Thunderball, Ball? before You Only Live Twice. I think Thunderball I was 65, and, say, and You Only Live Twice was 67. I almost want to say, you know, Bond started with the gadgets, but I think uh, this movie jumps ahead with gadgets to an almost, like, crazy level. Hmm. It's, I mean, it's... it's I... I, I would respectfully disagree only because I think Goldfinger gave us the gadgets. I think Goldfinger was right, really, right. truly the start of the Bond gadgets, and that's 63? Right. No, no, but I'm saying this was, like, over the top with gadgets. Yeah, okay. And then eventually, you know, eventually we'll get to uh, die, of, die Another Day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we've already talked about how I'm going to have to defend that one. Anyway, not, we're, not, we're not here to discuss those just yet. So why don't we rank this one? What do you think, Dave? Because it's a, it's a bit of a comedy, and we're not supposed to take it, you know, straight. I give this a very high Jaws 2 to a very low Jaws. Wow. Okay, that's, that's. I enjoyed it. I thought it was so much fun. I say high, high jaws too. Okay, I'm I'm a little lower on it because I think it it is more of a niche film that I think. First of all, I think you have to. I don't think you have to be a Dean Martin fan, but I think you have to be a. a I think you have to enjoy his persona. Yes. 
and I think you have to be a little bit into that pastiche of the 60s, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, for it to kind of fall into your wheelhouse. And I think you and I are, are bigger, bigger fans of that than some other people might be. Uh, I think you have to approach it with the right attitude, a little bit, a little bit tongue in cheek, but not total, not looking for a slapstick comedy because you're not going to get, you're not going to get a serious Bond film, and you're not going to get a slapstick comedy. You're going to get somewhere. You're going to get what you're getting is an exceptionally light-hearted Bond film uh, with comedy elements to it. Uh, so, because of all of that stuff, I do think it's put together well, and I think it's an enjoyable watch. Like I said, I don't think I'd say go to Amazon and try and buy it. Uh, but I, I think I'm going to say a high Jaws three, low Jaws two. But I'm, I'm going to I'm going to land on high Jaws three. Uh, Your mileage can vary. Yeah, absolutely. But but definitely fun to watch. I'm glad I got to sit through it, and uh, I'm probably going to, you know, if they're uh, to the extent they're available, I'm going to probably try and watch uh, the other three in the series at some point. Yeah, so. I'd like to see them as well. So that'll do it for the silencers. Uh, I don't know. As as we check out the other ones, if we, I think if we if we find them to be exceptionally different in any way, if if the tone changes dramatically or if the quality changes, which I'm I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting more of the same. Uh, but if the quality changes, then I would probably say, hey Dave, let's cover this one too. Uh, but if it's more of the same, I'm going to just leave it at covering the one in the series, and that'll do it. Uh, but we may I have a feeling. I have a feeling they're cookie cutter pictures. Yeah, much. that's what I think as well. So I, I, I don't think you're going to be seeing more of them on here. Uh, but I think we may try and check out the Flint movies at some point. But in the meanwhile, I think the next time that you and I will be getting together will be to do the Spy Who Loved Me with Chris. Yes. So, thanks for coming on again, Dave. Thanks for making yourself available. Pleasure. And thank you, thank you everybody thank you. for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Red sails in the sunset, way out on the sea. Who asked you to bring home the ocean to me? Uh, the farmers were hoping for rain. Oh, did I do that? Uh -huh. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I know I did. It's just like me. Here, let me help you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ma'am, I think the best thing for you to do is just leave me out in the sun to dry. Oh, okay? of course. <laughs> Gee, you really are a good sport about it. I'm surprised you didn't take umbrage. Well, I take a belt now and then. Oh. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Oh, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Eddie, fix me a Bloody Mary with real blood. I can't leave you alone for a second, can I? Not if you want to keep me dry. Quite a girl. That is not a girl, Tina. That's a disaster area. 
A message from father. We catch the 10 o'clock show at the Slago Club tonight. Hmm. I take it that's where the tape changes hands. Take it right. 